The convergence of biblical faith and Greek philosophical inquiry with the subsequent addition of the Roman heritage created Europe and remains the foundation of what can rightly be called Europe. Hello, my name is Ryan Hamill, and I am one of the hosts of New Humanists, the podcast of the Ancient Language Institute. As always, I'm here with Jonathan Roberts, my co-host and co-founder of the Ancient Language Institute. We are on a quest to discover what a renewed humanism looks like for the modern world. Jonathan, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Um, enjoying the last days of sunshine. In Idaho, before we're engulfed by by darkness for six months. Yeah, Oregonian dreariness has already settled settled well over my abode. Um, Jonathan, a few months ago, you posted something on Facebook asking, "Who is a public intellectual currently alive who is also a household name?" And so people had ideas of public intellectuals who are dead, who are household names, or public intellectuals who weren't household names. But we could only think of one person who might possibly fit this description. And that was Pope Benedict XVI, who, miraculously, I mean, the man is approaching 100. He is super old. Still Still alive. And yeah, not everybody knows, you know, much about him, but particularly when he was the kind of reigning pope. I don't know if you, a pope reigns. I guess he's the monarch of of a city-state. People knew who he was, even people who knew nothing about his kind of intellectual career. But that he's a public intellectual is certainly the case. Um, He's written some incredible stuff. So I figured it'd be good to dive into some of his thought. All right. One of his most famous contributions, I mean, he has many, 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 Um, But one of them is the Regensburg Lecture, which is what we're going to be talking about. It's this meditation on faith, reason, and the university. Um, But it is infamous because of what happened after he gave it in Germany in 2006. Um, And it's infamous along similar lines that Benedict himself is a little infamous. Even before he was pope, the media called him the Panzer Cardinal. This lecture ended up being a debacle on some level. Uh, And so some of that stuff needs to be debunked. I mean, there are an almost infinite number of reasons to not trust the news media. Almost all of those reasons are good reasons. But how the news media characterized Benedict and particularly characterized this lecture is for me at least one of the top reasons to not trust them. I mean, first of all, the idea that he's some sort of, you know, Teutonic knight going around taking people down ruthlessly is insane. (laughs) He's this retiring intellectual who has some very sophisticated arguments and is just eminently full of goodwill which is precisely what this lecture is. Sophisticated, very interesting, full of goodwill. Um, But there was a line in here in which Benedict is quoting a 15th century philosophical dialogue. Mm. So he's quoting a character in a dialogue 
And that quote, stripped of all of its context, gets spread around the world as representative of Benedict's own viewpoint. And the consequences of that were horrific, actually. Um, You had multiple churches attacked and burned down in the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, You had an Italian nun assassinated in Mogadishu. You had an Assyrian priest in Mosul, Iraq, beheaded um, in retaliation. And so I just think a little bit of background is needed because people, a lot of people have heard of the Regensburg Lecture, even if they've never read it. Um, And they know it primarily for this line. And I will read the line in a sec, but just here's the background journalists will not give you. So in this lecture, Benedict is talking about reason, faith, and the university. And towards the beginning, he's talking about a recently translated dialogue from a Byzantine emperor, a translation made by Theodore Curi, a Lebanese priest and scholar. Um, And the dialogue was written by Manuel II Paleologos, a Byzantine emperor. But the dialogue is based, we think, on actual conversations that Manuel II had with a Muslim scholar. And this was, interestingly, I was doing some reading um, from a new biography of Manuel II, Paleologos, called, it just goes by his name, the subtitle is A Byzantine Emperor in a Time of Tumult, just put out by Cambridge. But uh, these conversations happened while Manuel II was kind of forced to go on this military expedition by the Ottoman Sultan. The Ottoman Sultan was the real reigning power in kind of the Eastern Mediterranean. And these guys were technically enemies. The Ottoman Sultan was fighting against crusaders, but he also wanted to conquer some Islamic emirates in northern Turkey. And so he forced uh, Manuel II Paleologos to come and bring his army. And so anyways, they're wintering in Ankara, Turkey, and... They put up Manuel II in in an Airbnb uh, with a Muslim scholar. As men of learning, too, trying to argue about whether Islam or Christianity is the true religion. And they get into all sorts of interesting stuff. Um, And then he, in the dialogue, Manuel II says something that Benedict prefaces with the phrase, with a brusqueness we find unacceptable. So here, here's a statement that we think... And, and if, if Benedict was interviewed, you know, and was asked to clarify, with a brusqueness we find unacceptable, the reporter would ask, so by that you mean you fully endorse what you're about to say. Um, yeah. just, just to clarify, just so that, <laughs> so that there's no misunderstanding as to what's going on here. Right, right. Well, and this is, I mean, you laugh and it's funny because it's so absurd, but this is culpable. To do this kind of stuff is culpable for the deaths of people and the destruction of houses of worship. A fatwa was put out against Pope Benedict. There was a jihadist group in Pakistan that was like, uh, you have open season on the Pope, you should kill him for this. And it's like, Oh, we're just going to report it like he thinks he thinks this, which is, 
And this is, this is Manuel II's words. Show me just what Muhammad brought that was new, and there you will find things only evil and inhuman, such as his command to spread by the sword the faith he preached. Brusque indeed. Harsh. And if you think this is the Catholic Church's official position on Islam, yeah, I can see why you'd be mad. But again, I don't want to spend this whole podcast kind of doing an apologia for this line. But that's why it's newsworthy. That's why you may have heard about Regensburg's lecture. And it's this kind of thing that uh, people would call him the Panzer Cardinal for. When in reality, he's just using this as an entry into a much bigger, more interesting conversation. And really, if this address is an attack on anyone or anything, it's an attack on the modern university in the West for propagating an anti-human philosophy. And he's giving this address from the lectern of a university. So if he's going to attack anybody, he's going to do it in their stronghold. He's not going to take pot shots from far away. Um, Listeners might remember our previous episode about Tolkien's valedictory address. The Regensburg Lecture is of a similar genre. Um, Pope Benedict is Pope now, so he's not a professor, but he used to be a professor in Germany. And this is kind of like a valedictory address. It's him looking back on his past as an academic and kind of remembering it fondly, and but also thinking about the troubles that vexed him about it, and then trying to peer into the future of intellectual life in the West. Very similar to Tolkien's valedictory address. And, uh, and this, um, this address or lecture, um, if I understand correctly, he gave it at the university where he used to teach. Well, yeah, I, I wasn't quite sure because he talks about being at the University of Bonn. But then this is given uh, at the University of Regensburg, so I might be kind of exposing my ignorance about Germany. But he does say from this lectern, which makes me think it's possible he was a professor at Bonn, but then lectured also at Regensburg or gave a lecture there. Was this lecture originally in German? Yes. Okay, because the translation that I have says uh, podium instead of lectern. So at any rate, um, it'll be interesting to see if there's anything else like that that comes up. There is some Greek that we will talk about uh, that's really interesting. So either way, he'd either given lectures there before as a as a guest, um, most likely it seems. So he's he's coming back and he has more things to say. He's got yeah he's got more stuff to say to the German people, uh, particularly stop reading Kant. He's terrible. <laughs> yeah, can we can we get an amen? And uh, amongst the listeners. Um, One other reason he was called the Panzer Cardinal is for his supposed fire-breathing, reactionary, right-wing views, um, which, again, is a total caricature of the man. Even in this address, he makes a point of saying, I am not making the reactionary argument. He says, this attempt, painted with broad strokes, at a critique of modern reason from within has nothing to do with putting the clock back to the time before the Enlightenment and rejecting the insights of the modern age. Benedict is living in the modern world. He knows he lives in the modern, modern world, and he appreciates many of the achievements of modernity. And he's trying to create a new synthesis with those ingredients. So 
Anyways, I it's just so ridiculous um, how he's been treated and characterized, and it's so unhelpful for understanding him and his thought. So I will end that part of my rant, and we can get into the to the meat of this thing. Uh, before getting into the meat of it, um, one of the things that I find really interesting in this lecture is his discussion of his days as a professor. When he when he talks about it, and this is this is what in 1959 is when he began to teach. Yep. Um. So, you know, a chunk of his teaching was probably in the 60s. So he's talking about the 60s, and in Germany, and the world that he describes just kind of sounds kind of sounds like Hogwarts. You know? <laughs> kind of sounds like this is not this is kind of the world we live in, but not really. Um, and, and it sounds kind of awesome. So he, he talks about the Dies Academicus, the academic day. Uh, and this, I'll just read a bit here. Go for it. He says, you know, he's talking about the, the faculty and, and the things that they would do and, and the things that they would do with their students. And he says, we would meet before and after lessons in the rooms of the teaching staff. There was a lively exchange with historians, philosophers, philologists, and naturally between the two theological faculties. Question, hold on, uh, on that phrase. I didn't look this up, but what? why are there two theological faculties? Do you think there's a Catholic one and a Protestant one? Uh, could be. I believe that in, um, when, when was the Lutheran church disestablished? Or is it still the, the the churches are still established in Germany on some level? Um, Tax money goes to them, both yeah. of them, or all of them, really. So then, likely, um, possibly a Lutheran and a Roman Catholic theological faculty. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Seems, Continue. Seems possible. I don't. Yeah, you know, I don't really know. Um, once a semester, there was a Dies Academicus, when professors from every faculty appeared before the students of the entire university making possible a genuine experience of universitas. Something that you too, magnificent rector, just mentioned. The experience, in other words, of the fact that despite our specializations, which at times make it difficult to communicate with each other, we made up a whole, working in everything on the basis of a single rationality with its various aspects and sharing responsibility for the right use of reason. This reality became a lived experience. That's a great picture of what university life could be and was not that long ago. Right. Yeah, I mean, this idea, this, this, this image of like, you know, faculty from every discipline just gathering and having um, dialogue, attempting to instruct students in the proper use of reason and portraying what Benedict calls a universitas, a whole. Yes. A kind of an approach, a complete approach to, you know, to, to knowledge. And he, and he's got a, he's got a sense of humor about it too. He said, we knew that theology was part of the life of reason. Um, and so even when people would insult us or make jokes, uh, it did, didn't bother us. We could we could kind of take it. He says, we weren't even troubled when it was once reported that a colleague had said there was something odd about our university. It had two faculties devoted to something that did not exist. God. 
he's like, whatever. Perfectly comfortable in the fact that uh, theology is a discipline that belongs within the other academic disciplines because they're all devoted to an examination of truth. Yeah. Well, this is the... This is what I, what I think is one of the most um, important aspects of John Henry Newman's The Idea of the University. It's his discussion mm. of whether theology belongs in a university. And his contention is that every field of knowledge belongs in, in a university. And to, content, to say that, no, theology does not belong in the university is essentially to make a claim that we cannot know anything about God. So it's uh, instead of being this kind of like um, impartial judgment, it's like, no, we're not going to do theology because we are impartial. It's instead of making a very partial judgment and saying, no, we cannot have knowledge about this, so this does not belong. Uh, and, and we see this... Um, this kind of prejudice is something that Benedict describes here amongst even his colleagues in Germany in the 60s. Yeah, and he carries carries that critique through the piece. Um, we kind of mentioned Kant earlier, and he really indicts Kant for being the one who made the philosophical move to exclude theology from the other sciences, um, scantia, fields of knowledge. Um, so after this kind of idyllic image of the German university in the 60s, he then turns to this Greek-Byzantine dialogue, which is what got him in so much trouble. Um, and so why does, he, why does he include this line that I read to you? Well, that's the opening of a longer quotation and it's just, it's Manuel II's, the character Manuel II's in the dialogue. Because this is a, this is really a platonic dialogue. Manuel II is a student of Plato, and he's trying to write his own kind of platonic style dialogue. And so he's putting himself in, in the dialogue, and his character says this, makes this claim that what Muhammad brought was evil and inhuman. And the important part is his command to spread by the sword, the faith he preached. Because where Manuel really wants to get, rhetorically speaking, really get this Muslim scholar in the dialogue is, can faith be spread by the sword or must it be spread by reason? And so Manuel's argument is that faith requires an engagement with rational inquiry. And uh, Islam excludes that. So the, the speech is not about Islam. It's about reason in the life of faith. And that's really why Benedict includes this. And it's actually very relevant to debates that are very current in today about science and religion, faith and reason. And Benedict does not see an inherent conflict between these things. And honestly, I before he was older, I would have uh I wouldn't really want Benedict to dignify Sam Harris with uh <laughs> an appearance with him on stage, but still I would have paid money to see Benedict take down those kind of 
dogmatic assertion on the part of the new atheists or quote unquote secular humanists. Um, but the new atheists still a thing? No, I think it's mostly gone. Yeah. Um, but it's still a very popular view that religion is a matter of just kind of blind faith and then reason and logic are their own kind of thing and never the twain shall meet. And this lecture is really an attempt, among other things, to say such an outlook is antithetical to the university. It's antithetical to intellectual inquiry. And really, it's antithetical to being human. Yeah. And insofar as the university has embraced this dichotomy, and it has, the university is an enemy of humans. Right. And um, just to kind of be fair to the to the new atheists, you know, they read very carefully the works of Augustine and Anselm and Aquinas and said, you know, these guys just don't care about reason. <laughs> um, they just, you know, they're just not using logic. They're not making arguments. Um, but I digress. So let's really quickly, um, let's make the argument or kind of rehash the argument that Benedict makes uh, on this. Like, why, why is it that religion requires uh, reason or rational inquiry? Um, and why, why is, there's kind of two concerns. There's the kind of new atheist concern that these things are incompatible, they're oil and water. But then there's a kind of mirror image concern coming from an entirely different direction. Um, and this is the kind of Muslim view of transcendence. God is so transcendent, trying to reason about him is an affront to God's sovereignty. You actually should not uh, kind of do philosophy in the service of theology or something like that. Um, so, Jonathan, what is it about both reason and religion that these things are actually can go together. So um, I think Benedict begins with the nature of God. And that's, that's also why he, um, he includes this, this discussion on with this dialogues about Christianity and Islam. And he's, he is definitely making a contrast between the, what he takes to be the Islamic view of God and the Christian view of God. Yes. And when he is talking about the Christian um, view of God, he introduces the, this discussion on, on the Logos. He talks about how in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos is God. And so he then goes into a, a small uh, but still philological discussion on what, what that means. What does it mean? Uh, for God to be the Logos. Um, and of course, Logos is a word that means word, um, but it also means you know, reason. And that's one of the themes that Benedict is interested in, in developing. Um, Logos, of course, also means, it's kind of like ratio in Latin. It's one of those words that can mean so many things. Mm-hmm. Um, Logos can also mean a story and the account of something. Um, so he, he begins with, with God. Yes. Um, and what is, what is the nature of God? And he has this line, uh, at the, at the beginning of this transition, he says, 
At this point, as far as understanding of God, and thus the concrete practice of religion is concerned, we are faced with an unavoidable dilemma. Is the conviction that acting unreasonably contradicts God's nature merely a Greek idea, or is it always and intrinsically true? So one of the um one of the themes that he wants to develop later on as well, that he also sees as an enemy of reason, um, the true purpose of the university and humanity, is this idea that Christianity kind of got co-opted by Greek philosophical categories. Um, right. And which is, which is trendy right now. It was trendy when he gave the speech and it's still trendy in Christian circles that we have to return to some kind of what the early church was really about before it got infected by Greekness. Right. Yeah. It's still, um, the leftovers of this are still with us. Um, and so that's, that's also why he, he brings up this question. Is this just a Greek idea or is this just true? He then, and then with what follows ties in, I think what his, his discussion of, um, you know, the nature of God and, and reason. Mm -hmm. So he says, I believe that here we can see the profound harmony between what is Greek and the best sense of the word and the biblical understanding of faith and God. Yeah. And he, he takes you on a whirlwind tour of Judeo Christian monotheism in like two paragraphs, starting I mean, starting with Genesis in the beginning, going to the burning bush, the God who reveals himself as I am, I am who I am, an assertion that he says presents a challenge to the notion of myth. And then this is really interesting. This I am, uh, the burning bush moment, stands in close analogy to Socrates' attempt to vanquish and transcend myth. And so happening simultaneously in Athens with the Socratic, well, not simultaneously, but before any kind of known, there's theorized crossover, but any known attested uh, crossover between the Greek and the Hebrew outlooks, Socrates is attempting something similar. Um, and so then Benedict jumps to the exile when it becomes evidently clear that the Jews do not consider their God, I am who I am, to be their kind of just their national God, just their local God, but to be the God of the entire cosmos. Uh, he cites Psalm 115, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. The idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. So this is the universal God of all the world. Idols are uh, are just that. They're just statues that men foolishly pray to, but our God is the universal God. And he jumps from there to John 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, in the beginning was the Logos, echoing, echoing Genesis. And then this was new to me uh, and really fun. He says, the encounter between the biblical message and Greek thought did not happen by chance. The vision of St. Paul, who saw the roads to Asia barred, 
and in a dream saw a Macedonian man. Remember, Macedon is uh, where Alexander the Great came from, the great Hellenizer of the Mediterranean world. Saw a Macedonian man plead with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. That's Acts 16. Benedict says, this vision can be interpreted as a distillation of the intrinsic necessity of a rapprochement between biblical faith and Greek inquiry. So in other words, there is something essentially important about Greekness, about Greek philosophy uh, that lends itself to understanding Christianity. Benedict's not saying that Christianity is just kind of a two-part thing, faith in the Bible and philosophy, but he's saying Greek philosophy brought something out. The questions it asks bring something out that the scriptures can illuminate. Um, This is something he expands on in the book Truth and Tolerance. And this is a, I'm going to read a quote from it, but when I first read this, it was just as I got out of college. Um, this was, I don't know, Jonathan, you've probably had this experience of reading something that just kind of struck you and kind of course corrected you a little bit, or it, cha- it changed your mind about something. But that little change over the years caused a huge, a huge difference in miles. Like five years later, you're Right, ten thousand miles away from where you would have been without having read that that line. Yes, and this this was for me one of these things because I was very much in the mode of the kind of decolonize Christianity from Greek or decolonize the Greekness out of Christianity, and then I I read this and it changed me. Christ is not an avatar of God, perhaps an especially impressive one one of the multifarious manifestations of the divine in which we learn to have some inkling of the divine. He is not a manifestation of the divine, but is God. In him, God has shown us his face. Anyone who sees him has seen the Father. Here, it is genuinely a matter of the is. This is the real dividing line in the history of religions, and for that very reason, it is the effective force for uniting them. That is why the encounter with the Greek's ontology, with its question concerning is, is not a philosophical distortion of the Christian faith, but has become its indispensable form of expression. And this ultimately, this idea that the philosophical attempt to uncover being itself, what is, is the kind of indispensable form that Christianity must take. That is why, that's A, what kind of blew my mind at the time of reading it, but also it it, it helps explain why religion is not anti-rational or irrational. Christian religion requires reason. It must deploy it. Yeah, he uses the, in the earlier paragraph, God acts according sun logo, well, God acts sun logo, according to reason. Um, and of course, you know, for a fuller treatment of the nature of God, that one can do worse than take a look at Thomas Aquinas. Mm-hmm. Sure. So 
just to kind of get some some clarity on one of one of the things that we discussed here talks about how Socrates is trying to transcend myth. Yes. This is like one of my favorite parts. What comes to my mind is in a sense the project of the republic. You know, you got to you can't can't trust the poets. You know, they're they're liars. Right. They're they're not, you know, they're not uh telling us what's true about the gods and so even worse than being liars, they're impious. So they must be banished from the city. Right, because they have all these terrible stories about how, you know, Zeus, the father of gods and men, disguises himself as an animal so he can sleep with some beautiful human woman. Like, you can't have the father of gods and men doing crap like that. Yeah, and the the gods are in conflict. You know, they don't get along. They're not team players. Um, And they do all these crazy things. So... The gods of the poets must be crazy, mm-hmm. as Socrates concludes. <laughs> yeah. And so he's attempting to, to transcend mythology. He's attempting to, to understand the true nature of the gods. Mm-hmm. And, it doesn't, and he can't do it, um, ultimately. And I think he knows that. I think he knows that. Just given the amount of, of attention and um, consideration that he's given to to the fact that the poets are making stuff up when he comes to his own founding myth of the noble city, right? He has his own myth of the, of the metals. He knows that he's making that stuff up. It's, it's obvious. I mean, he says, you just have to tell them this. Right. This is a myth or it's the noble lie that we're all right. born out of the earth. We, so we all have the same mother and you have one right. of three elements inside you. Yeah. This is like, this is the myth we need, are going to replace. Homer with. Right. So yeah, he, he's like, well, at least it's, it's not as, as, as impious. <laughs> right? Right. It, but, oh man, it's still made up. Right. Yeah. I can't, I can't, um, I can, you know, I can just imagine like Plato and his trying to write this. And I was like, ah, oh, man, can't really do it. Can't really do the thing ultimately, which is transcend myth. He wants to. Yep. But well, he can't. I, I, think so, of the Rep- I think of the Republic, but also Euthyphro. Which yeah. is a similar problem. How how can you be pious when the gods are like this? Are you supposed to do what the gods do? But uh, what the gods do is so terrible. Um, maybe you should just listen to them. But why should you listen to them and go against their example? Where's piety come from? Uh, and the youth of Fro's famous for this dilemma that doesn't get resolved. Just like in the Republic, you kind of have this contradiction, and as Socrates just kind of leaves you hanging. Right. Right. So he knows, right? He knows he he could not transcend mythology. And, you know, I believe this is something that C.S. Lewis writes about in The Inklings, about how the highest yearnings of the pagans are fulfilled in Christianity. And this is this ties in to what Benedict says about the burning bush. This This transcends, right? This has transcended mythology. And um, he doesn't develop this as much as um, one, one would like, but if you kind of follow what that implies, yeah, I think it's really interesting. So wh- why does the burning bush, that episode, transcend mythology? Uh, and there's, there's a few things that come to my mind. Well, one, according to the Christian faith, this is a historical incident. 
This is this is history, right? This is not mythology in the sense of a made-up story, right? We can think there's different senses of, of mythology, and that's also another area where the inklings uh, are helpful. Um, but it's historical. Uh, the other way in which it, it seems to transcend mythology is that it's also a just metaphysical claim. I am. It's not, he's not, it's not a story, right? There, it's not an account. It's just a statement. I am. Um, and it's in this sense that achieves what Socrates could only dream and hope for. So the metaphysical claim that you're talking about issuing from the burning bush, are you saying that's God saying I am being itself? I mean, even, even without, even without taking it that far, um, it's still a metaphysical claim, Mm -hmm. right? I am, I'm out there. I exist. I'm, I'm real. I am, I am what, um, and if, if we push it to in the way you suggested, I am from where all real things have their being, right? So it's, it, um, it's definitely that sort of metaphysically rich statement um, that's radically different from any statement that any god in any mythology ever said. And it's only two, yes. it's only two words. <laughs> well, in English. <laughs> right. In English, right. it's two yeah. words. Um, yeah. We'll have to ask our Hebrew folks um, how many words this is in, in Hebrew. Right. The fact that Benedict brings up the both Socrates and the revelation of uh, the God who is who he is, um, this kind of Judeo-Christian revelation, makes me think of Nietzsche, partly because I'm reading Nietzsche right now. But, um, I mean, Benedict is German. He's talking about Kant here and some other German thinkers. I have no doubt he, on some level, has Nietzsche in the back of his mind, too. Because Nietzsche sees both Socrates and Judaism and Christianity as the ultimate enemies to his project. Because Nietzsche's Mm. project is Dionysus. It's the gods kind of, the gods come back. The old gods of mythology that come roaring back to life. Because Nietzsche sees the kind of tree of kind of justice and metaphysics and all the traditional theological and philosophical categories as rotten at the very root uh, because of Socrates and because of the Bible. And Benedict is, is saying like, no, look, this is how myth gets totally turned upside down. Uh, it's interesting. The, the, there's, this, there's a weird sense in which Nietzsche is kind of on the same page with um, a lot of the early Christians. So who comes to my mind specifically is Clement of Alexandria, who uh, basically says, oh, yeah, Socrates knew about Moses. Yeah, right. Socrates learned from Moses. You know, he, <laughs> he received his teaching. Um, and, and the the impulse behind those sorts of statements is that, you know, early Christians read things in, in the works of, um, of Plato. And they're like, yeah, this is... There's some kinship here. Yep. 
how did he um, find truth? And so the they learned this from Moses. It's, a, it's an attempt to answer this really interesting and important question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have this incredible synthesis of Greek philosophy and Christianity, which Benedict is celebrating here and expounding on. Um, and then it all goes wrong. There's the kind of his three moments of dehellenization, but we, that's kind of sneak preview. Before we get there, I want to kind of bring it to a fever pitch, the synthesis, and in its all of its beauty. He says, uh, Benedict says, Christian worship is, again, to quote Paul, logike latreia, worship in harmony with the eternal word and with our reason. And here he's uh, with logike latreia, he's quoting Paul in Romans 12.1. Uh, the actual phrase is ten logiken latrean, which uh, I looked up a few different translations. So when I read it, my like, I was like, how would I translate logiken latrea? I was like, logical adoration was kind of the, <laughs> the translation that jumped to my mind. But then I looked up um, King James does reasonable service. I'm like, what a strange, I can see that reasonable. I got logical logike. Um, and then Latreya, I did adoration, they did service. Um, and then the RSV does spiritual worship. Um, King James, my friends, King James. But even that feels, reasonable service feels kind of lame. Like, this is why, I mean, this is yet another reason to, you know, come learn Greek with us at the Ancient Language Institute, and then you can just kind of bask in the glories of... Uh, these texts in their original, but it's it's a bit magnificent and, of a phrase, and Benedict is kind of using it as an epitome of the genius of this synthesis of the of Greek and Christian. It's kind of like I mean, logike. This is logos. This is John one one. In the beginning was the word. So it's like this logos, and then latreia can be service, it can be worship, adoration, ministry. So I, I, I'm now translating it as Logos Ministry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, you know, if uh, the term service, it might now give us the image of like, you know, military service or serving the poor or serving someone. Or table service at a restaurant. Right. But um, I think there's still some echoes of it in a phrase like church service. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So, it, so the translators of the King James probably have had something more along the lines of worship. Yes, with um, when they're talking about service. Yes, I do not. To be clear, I love the King James, and I do not fault Shakespeare <laughs> for. <laughs> I do not fault Shakespeare <laughs> for failing to anticipate the kind of pallid, diminished. Uh, versions of reasonable service because the other problem is reasonable now for us means like kind of moderate yeah. not over the top it's like right. it's reasonable service like um decent decent yeah. care your decent care right that's reasonable it's like <laughs> yeah, which exactly. which means i do not very strongly object <laughs> yeah. right? that's reasonable uh, i'll give it a pass um one area where i imagine um Benedict and others have have uh, articulated um, in fuller fashion the, the nature of this synthesis is 
how exactly does it work? What is each thing doing? And this is how I've come to think about it is with the um, revelation found in the Old and New Testament, you have essentially you know, the word of God given to mankind. And how are we to understand what's been given to us? Right, we we are given something, and it is our um, our reasonable service <laughs> to understand what has been given to us. Mm-hmm. And the use of reason is inescapable for that sort of endeavor. Hmm. Reading requires the use of reason. Understanding what you have read requires the use of reason. Yes, um, and so this is where. The this is this is also why the Greeks are are useful in this synthesis is because they are uh, devoted to the proper use of reason um, and to the careful articulation and examination of arguments mm-hmm. and so it's you can say that the that the that the Greeks are a uh, a school or a gymnasium in careful and attentive um, discerning of what revelation has for us. Yes. Yeah. This calls to mind a quote from uh, a dear friend and brilliant thinker who we are going to have on this podcast quite soon. Um, Patrick Downey, who's a professor of philosophy in at St. Mary's college of California. Um, the quote is in my text messages. <laughs> so I'm going to find it and read it. Um, because for me, it really sums up. I was just like texting him about something kind of related to this. And he just wrote this uh, incredibly beautiful, short statement of how these how faith and reason go together. Um He says, if you ask good philosophical questions because of nature, you will get better theological answers from scripture. Philosophy is the reach exceeding its grasp. Christ is the grasp that accounts for the nature of that reach. That's a text message we're saving. (laughs) So we've arrived at the the fever pitch. Um, And it all goes wrong, Jonathan. It all goes wrong. And it's all, and it's the usual suspect. I regret to inform you that it's because of the Protestant Reformation. And well, there's that, of course, the Protestant Reformation, great synthesis. Uh, but before that, he has this, like, and then we have these really bad scholastics, John Dun Scotus. You are the worst. Uh, he doesn't put it that way, but there is this very, very common narrative that this is how it all falls apart yes this is this is why for our listeners why we're being a little um i don't know cheeky cheeky is just because the idea of kind of early or late late antique and medieval christianity being this towering edifice torn apart first by nominalist theologians and voluntarists and that yeah and voluntarists and then uh the protestants it's just a very common argument um it can be made in more convincing and less convincing ways but it's it's a bit 
Do you, you want to give your, Jonathan, do you want to give your like one minute on why this is grown worthy a little bit? Well, yeah. So amongst the, amongst all of the, so there's two, two main reasons why just kind of hurts the soul to see this narrative um, is one, whenever you see this narrative, starting with the SCOTUS angle, um, no, nobody like, for instance, who comes to mind, Bradis Gregory, the uh, radical Orthodox folks, um, I'm forgetting their names. Milbank. Milbank. Yeah, that's right. Um, and the guy that wrote the theological origins of modernity. Um, you see this in Richard Weaver. You see this in, um, I think you see this a little bit in Peeper. It's everywhere. It needs to be crushed. Um, I, I think it, I think Martin's really the kind of source of it. I think everyone's pulling from Martin or from someone else who pulled from Martin. And none of them are reading primary sources. None of them are going ad fontes. I've looked uh, at the claims that they make about SCOTUS and it's like, okay, let's, let's, let, let's see. Let's see. They don't cite SCOTUS. Nobody cites SCOTUS. So that's one reason why the, that's kind of like, oh, this is, this is not, this is not good. Uh, which is also why we'll need to bring, I have two, two, SCOTUS scholar friends. We'll have to chat with them about this. Okay. Great. They they suffer, you know, whenever they they hear this sort of stuff. Yeah. Um. They're like, N- none of them understands SCOTUS, and of course, if you don't read them, makes sense. To be fair, SCOTUS is very hard to read and understand. So let's say let's say SCOTUS isn't a villain, and he just kind of some for some reason right. he got picked on. Nevertheless. That doesn't really matter because it's really the Protestant reformers' fault because they hated philosophy right. and didn't appreciate what Thomas Aquinas did. Right, yeah. So the the general narrative is like the late scholastics kind of start to destroy the edifice and then the worst of scholasticism is kind of what... Uh, there's different kinds of narratives, but one of them is the worst of scholasticism. That's what the Protestants take and disseminate. Um, now, this is absolutely grown worthy for a myriad of reasons but for instance one philosopher that that benedict would look at as a model for christian philosophy is thomas aquinas if you look at the writings of the protestant reformers is thomas aquinas a villain is thomas aquinas um the equivalent of him whom we shall not name no thomas aquinas is used as a positive model for for doing theology and the um, Protestants also engage in, um, or, or part of the, I would say, part of the kind of ad fontes humanism movement, humanist movement to read the sources um, and their original languages. And so when you read uh, early modern Protestants, you see their positive use of all sorts of classical um, sources, not, not simply philosophical ones, right? Those are easy to spot. The use of Aristotle, the, there's lots of commentaries on Aristotle, but also mythology is what comes to mind at the moment. So I, I've been reading Philip Melanchthon's, um, kind of orations on education. Melanchthon, of course, being the kind of right hand man slash disciple of Luther. Right. Right. Yep. Great humanist. Um, and in his orations on education, 
It's, it's kind of funny how often he talks about the Cyclops. He's like, these folks who don't care about the education of the soul, they are the Cyclops, hmm. right? And so he takes the Cyclops to be this creature, you know, the creature that only has one eye that's only focused on earthly things. Um, just getting more cheese. This just wants the cheese. Give me the cheese, man. Um, or, or I'll eat you. <laughs> <laughs> And so there's this this um, appropriation not only of um, not only of philosophy but also of mythology for the sake of theology and the common good that you see in the early modern Protestants. Um, so I don't think that they get the kind of credit or fair reading um, that they deserve. I agreed. Now, in defense of Benedict, I will on the one hand set aside the. Duns Scotus issue. I myself have not read, read Duns Scotus, so I have no idea. I'm not qualified to assess Benedict's reading of him. But in defense of Benedict's point about the Protestant reformers, he's actually very gentle um, with them. And he has kind of three villains of the dehellenization of Christianity. And the first one in the first paragraph, seems to be the Reformation, um, but it culminates actually with Immanuel Kant. And he then says, uh, so Kant stated he needed to set thinking aside in order to make room for faith, uh, which is this kind of backhanded, Kant's backhanded formulation of saying, you cannot think reasonably about faith. Um, so let's just bracket it and never talk about it again. And let's now do philosophy. And Benedict says, he, Kant, carried this program forward with a radicalism that the reformers could never have foreseen. So compared to some Roman Catholic polemicists, Benedict is incredibly measured. And it's he basically lets the reformers off the hook. And so I think there's very little to indict them with from his words here. Yeah, I think I think this paragraph, in terms of like getting to how he perceives the end of the the synthesis, as it were, or maybe even the, just the beginning of the end, kind of deserves a careful read because I think it's really interesting. So he begins with dehellenization first emerges in connection with the po postulates of the Reformation in the 16th century, and of course, uh, dehellenization is what we've talked about before. This kind of project to to remove <clears throat> any sort of Greek category or Greek influence upon Christian thinking. Supposedly in order to liberate Christian thinking. Right, right. And so if what Benedict has contended is correct, and I think he is correct, that the Greeks are a great aid to our uh, appreciation of Revelation. But if we, if we want to get rid of the Greeks, do we want to get, what does that mean? Do we want to get rid of the proper use of reason in the reading of Revelation? Um, do we want to, do we want religion to be a merely fideistic sort of project where it's like, we can't really know, you just got to do the leap of faith and hope you don't, you know, fall off a really tall building. Right. So with that view, of course, dehumanization is, is a problem. Right. And this is where he sees the beginning of it with the postulates of the Reformation in the 16th century. All right. When he says postulates, do you think he means the five solos? I think that that is, um, that's what I think. Either that or like the, the important principles, um, which the five solos would be, right. would be important principles of the Protestant Reformation. Right. Um, and I think something that he says later on 
kind of makes me lean in that direction as well. So he says, looking at the tradition of scholastic theology, the reformers thought they were confronted with a faith system totally conditioned by philosophy. That is to say, an articulation of the faith based on an alien system of thought. And uh, scholastics, um, interestingly enough, would be folks, of course, like Thomas Aquinas, but John Duns Scotus would also qualify as a scholastic. Uh, William of Ockham, the real, if you want to know who the real, real, real bad boy is, it's <laughs> William of Ockham. It's like when folks talk about Scotus, it sounds, ooh, spooky. But then it's like, oh, William of Ockham, that's like the, the, um, <laughs> Uh, the, the the like the true darkness is is <laughs> in, inhabited in him, um, but you know scholastics, a lot of medieval thinkers, right, qualify here. And so the the concern he says that the reformers have is that this scholastic theology is um, is alien, is totally alien to the faith. Right? No, no, no. That is not what Benedict is saying. That is not what Benedict. Benedict is saying about the reformers. Benedict is saying the reformers looked at the scholastic system around them. Right. And said it had grown up into a system that was now pure system. It was a philosophical system that used the Bible as proof text, but not as in a real font, a real source. Yeah, yeah. So, an articulation of the faith based on an alien system of thought. So you have, you have kind of like you're saying proof texts, but what's really doing the work is this alien system of thought. Right. You might you you they yeah. He's saying the reformers look around them, and what scholastic theology has become is like a house, and the foundation is basically Plato, and then you have the kind of uh, framing is maybe Neoplatonism, and then, yeah, you put you put some Bible drywall up. Right, right. And um, there is, I, I would say that there, there is something to this. There is Absolutely, to there this. is. And, I have read, okay, sorry. Go oh, ahead. and um, I, would, I would say that a good kind of historical entry into this sort of discussion is the um, humanist and scholastic debate. Uh, let me get the title right. It's actually a, a long title. The humanist scholastic debate in the Renaissance and Reformation. Hmm. Um, it's published by Harvard University Press. Um, the author is Erica Rummel. It's, it's very readable, very, very interesting and it it kind of discusses this um, discontent that the humanists had with the scholastics. Yes, and um, and key to that is the fact that these scholastics are making claims about texts that they have not read in their original languages. And so it's like you know you guys don't really know what you're talking about. You have right. this philosophical system that's coherent, that's logically consistent. That what's the foundation? It's not the text, because you don't know what it says. You're talking about reasonable service when it really says right. logike latreia. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Or or um you know, the classic example 
of uh, Latin translation, translating something like, you know, mm-hmm. do penance, right? And the Greek, of course, is metanoia, repent. Mm-hmm. And that's a classic proof text for the kind of penitential system. So it's those sorts of, kind of those sorts of lack of attentiveness to the text that this discontent that arises well before the Reformation is something that um, Protestant reformers would definitely share in. So, yes. so um, there is definitely something to what Benedict is saying here. Um, now, in defense of scholasticism, I think that that part of what was prevalent is not was not the best of scholasticism was not the best of what scholasticism has to offer. Right. And yeah. And I don't know for people who, you know, play the Wikipedia game where you like click link after link and you end up spending two hours on Wikipedia reading thing after thing. You might, if you ever end up on a battle, a page, a Wikipedia page about a battle, you see on the right hand side, the little bar where it has two columns with the belligerents and little flags for each side and how many men fight. This debate about the voluntarists and nominalists and scholastics and humanists gets typified as being on the one side, the Catholics, on the other side, the Protestants, and you can just line everybody up with their little generals, but it's way more complicated than that. Like the humanists getting pissed off at the scholastics because they're not looking at the sources predates Wittenberg, predates Luther, like Jonathan said, but it also crosses party lines, so to speak. Just read Erasmus, right? Praise of Folly, humanist, Catholic till his di- Roman Catholic till his dying day, and the Praise of Folly. The number one target of that book is these kind of late medieval, early modern scholastics, right? In favor of what? In favor, like Erasmus isn't just a, isn't a cynic. He's sarcastic and biting for sure, but what he wants to replace that cold scholasticism with, or at least supplement it or reform it with, is a very personal, simple piety of prayer and devotion to Jesus. So yeah, you can't you can't make it a Wikipedia page, basically, is my point. Right. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. You're gonna see, yeah, so you shouldn't have the impression that like the humanist movement becomes the Reformation, and then you have like the humanist Protestants on the one hand, and the <laughs> right. and the scholastic uh, Roman Catholics on the other hand. But that is the impression you will get if you listen to nine out of ten conversations about this issue. And uh, what you will see is not only you know humanists um, on both sides, uh, you will also see the same author, like a single author, writing both sorts of um, works. Or engage in both sorts of works. You'll see folks, you know, like like uh, Melanchthon is, is of course a great example doing writing something close to systematic theology, right? And his Loci Communis, um, doing doing what very much looks like a scholastic project of like, oh, categories, uh, questions, answers, careful thought, oh, spooky, and and humanistic rhetorical. Elegance in um, in his discourses and his lectures and his commentaries on classical works. I think Philip Melanchthon has a commentary on uh, Cicero's Pro Archia Poeta. No way. Um, oh. 
gotta read that. So you have the same same author doing both things. So it's not it's not like okay, fine. You know, there's humanists and scholastics on both sides, but you as an individual, you have to choose one or the other. <laughs> right? Like, actually, no, no, that's not how it works. That's not the issue. In any case. We have spent more time on this one paragraph than... But we're not even done. <laughs> oh, God. No, please. For the sake of our list, they're all, they're, all, they're all stopping listening right now. No, we are done. Moving on to the second villain of dehellenization. And this second villain is Benedict's real target, in my opinion. It's Adolf von Harnack and 19th century liberal theology. This is the subject of uh, Benedict's own inaugural lecture. So this we we kind of this is a kind of quasi valedictory address, like Tolkien's is kind of his goodbye to the university on some level. But he gave an inaugural lecture, unlike Tolkien. Tolkien never got around to giving an inaugural lecture. Um, Benedict did. He was then Ratzinger, of course, um, and it was God of Faith and God of Philosophy. I looked. I couldn't find an English translation of it. I think it's just in German. If someone knows of an English translation, send it to me. And I will uh, pay you homage on this podcast um, by name if you want. If not, that's okay. Uh, And so what's Harnack and what's kind of liberal theology up to? So um, his his target here, so I think that there's somewhat slightly different projects, um, but certainly related in their effect. But with, with Kant, to kind of go a few steps back, Kant's... Oh, no. Just, no, no, with, <laughs> with Kant, not in terms of the paragraph, okay? We're not, okay. Uh, not going back in the paragraph, just a little bit on Kant and what he's up to. His kind of metaphysical project or anti this is this is where there's an affinity between Harnack and Kant, is that there's this anti-metaphysical project um, where Kant essentially says... You cannot know stuff about the world. You can only know stuff about your thoughts. Um, and by the way, Kant is also very hard to read and understand. Um, and there's two authors that come to my mind that have done of almost miraculous work in terms of like reading and interpreting Kant. One is Anthony Kenny. Sir Anthony Kenny, I, I'm a pleb, I should say, Sir Anthony Kenny, um, and Sir Roger Scruton. Oh, interesting. They both have introductory works in Kant that make Kant accessible to the common man, which is not something that I particularly think is a good thing. So you need to be an aristocrat in order to make Kant comprehensible to commoners like us, huh? Yes. That's this what, this what it seems to be the case. <laughs> yeah. um, at least historically, uh, so you can't you can't know stuff. You can only know your thoughts. And this is kind of like the anti-Socratic move, right? It's the opposite of <laughs> transcending myth. Uh it's the opposite of like trying to get a metaphysical understanding of reality. It's like, no, you can't have that. No. No more, no more knowledge of of the real world outside of your brain. It's just your thoughts. That's all that you know. Um, and so, that of course is radically anti-metaphysical, and it's 
it it uh, kind of front loads the epistemic project and then with Harnack you have this similar um similar project he is more interested in the dehellenization stuff he's like you know all this metaphysics stuff that's really bad let's not do the metaphysical stuff uh let's take it out so you have these kind of towering giants as it were who become very influential who are in their in their own way making contentions that um that really put metaphysics and I would, I would say the back burner, but it's like, you can't even do metaphysics. You can't even argue for metaphysics. It's gone. At least as far as Harnack is concerned, relative to Christianity, the issue is front loading the morality. And so anyone who pretty, probably anyone has heard a Harnack version of Christianity, which is, you know, don't stop insisting on Christianity being a kind of unique religion or some some spiritual or theological uh, thing. It's really just about doing good deeds and loving your neighbors. Uh, and so anyone who's read Lewis, C.S. Lewis, will have encountered uh, Harnack because this is I don't know. I don't know if it's Harnack in particular, but it's this argument that Lewis is always attacking, which is say what you want about Jesus. You cannot say he's just some moral teacher. Uh, and that's the famous trilemma of Lewis. Right. He's either, he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Either he's lying to you in order to create a cult following that like I can forgive sins, or he's a lunatic. He really believes he's the son of God, or he really is the Lord. So Lewis would, you know, just kind of go crazy and attack Harnack on sight if he saw him, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he's, it's basically, oh, no, he is the Lord, but he's the Lord of good vibes. It's the Lord of good vibes. <laughs> it's good the, vibes. the sort of Christianity. It's like, it's all about the good vibes. Just make sure that nobody has a bad vibe and you're good. Uh, yes. And then Benedict gets into, the kind of modern concept of reason. And he has a great image that is easy to uh, overlook, but I found it really evocative. He's saying because of the synthesis of kind of Platonist Cartesianism and empiricism, a synthesis confirmed by the success of technology, which is, I mean, it's a lot of isms, but I think the point is if we can... We can take the observable world and run tests. That's the empiricism. And we can use those tests, those experiments, to get certifiable truth, certifiable facts about the world. That's what science is. And that's kind of the modern common sense position. Um, the only kind of certainty that's available to you is what results from the interplay of mathematical and empirical elements. and that's what science means. Um, but Benedict is working with a different definition of science because if you go back to the very beginning of this piece, he it's titled, or it's kind of labeled as a meeting with the representatives of science. So even the University of Regensburg kind of knows that science is bigger than this. And so this is the great image I'm talking about. Benedict says, um, 
By its very nature, this method excludes the question of God, making it appear an unscientific or pre-scientific question. Consequently, we are faced with a reduction of the radius of science and reason, one which needs to be questioned. And so this image of the radius being reduced, I thought about a street lamp. Like you have a street lamp uh, making this kind of cone of light. I think the light is really great because that's what, um, like all about reason is trying to shed light on reality. And what this kind of Cartesian empiricism has done is like imagine, imagine a diagram of a circle, a circle of light on the ground. The radius has shrunk. And so it's like you've put blinders all around the street light. And so the light that it shines down is super narrow and you're only seeing a tiny spot on the ground. When in reality, before you reduced science, you reduced rational inquiry to this kind of mathematical and experimental version, it, it cast a much, a much brighter light, a much broader light. Um, and, and we're living in this tiny little cone of light and we think that's all there is that we can know. Yeah, this is a really interesting um, kind of aspect of modern philosophy is that often it gets kind of this reputation of like exalting the human mind and like being all about autonomous human reason and and what it can do. When in reality, a lot of what modern philosophy does is say, actually, you thought that your mind could do things like prove the existence of God. You thought that your mind could know things outside of its own thoughts? Nah, your mind can't do that. That's a lot of modern philosophy. So, and it's yes. and its attempt to kind of get rid of God. Yep. Reason becomes collateral damage. So when God is taken out of the picture, then reason becomes collateral damage and ultimately what becomes collateral damage? Humans. Benedict says it is man himself who ends up being reduced. And so Benedict is pointing the finger at the university and says, this is what you have done. You have reduced man. Yeah. You've re reduced humanity down. Yeah. And I think that's worth teasing out a little bit. Like, sure. And what, what comes to your, when he says you have reduced man, what, based on, on what he's saying here, what, what is the statement he's making? Well, he's saying that anything that's not mathematical and empirical becomes subjective. Uh, the subject then decides on the basis of his experiences what he considers tenable in matters of religion. Um, and so ethics and religion lose their power to create a community and become a completely personal matter. So when I want to look around at my neighborhood or my country, and say, such and such a thing is bad, is wicked, is evil, is unjust, or such and such a thing is just, is great, is beautiful, is glorious. I'm lying. I can't really say any of those things. All I can really say is, I feel, I believe that killing someone is evil. I believe killing someone is evil is a very weak statement compared to killing people is evil. And to strip away from people the ability to say something is bad, something is wrong, something is evil. This uh, this is this is fundamental. Why why, why do you think the first thing is the Hebrew people get coming out of slavery 
as free people. They're finally free. And what do they get? They get a statement of what is good and what is wicked, the Ten Commandments. And a modern university, uh, modern philosophy says that the desire for that, the reality of that is a lie. That is a reduction of what it means to be human. Yeah. Well, this attempt to remove, you know, certain elements from, well, from knowledge, right? Because they're, because they're essentially saying, yeah, this is not knowledge. You cannot have knowledge about these things. Is um, to use an earlier image, is to turn man into a cyclops. Right. Exactly. Only has an, one eye that only cares about the things that can be measured and manipulated. And of course, there are certain things that cannot be measured, right? God, by his very nature, cannot be measured. He mm-hmm. cannot, he is without measure. He cannot be manipulated. And another way, I think, is, you know, in which they turn men into cyclops is once they've removed the worship of God as well. Because this is, this is part of what the human soul desires. This is part of what, what fulfills the human person. Yeah. Is seeking, uh, seeking after God, and these are things that they've done a, done away with. And Socrates was, even though Socrates was trying to, on some level, debunk the myths, Socrates was not dumb enough to think we can just get rid of worship altogether. He, he just said we need to rectify right. the the worship of the gods. We don't get rid of them. Yeah, I mean, what is his last dying act? <laughs> yeah, uh, who does he say this to? Crito? Um, possibly. I don't remember who. But he, he says, we owe a cock to Asclepius. Don't forget it. Uh, we owe a rooster to the god of healing. Don't forget to make the sacrifice on my behalf. Right. It's kind of... Uh, <laughs> nobody quite knows what he means. It's kind of like, I am who I am. What, is, what, is, what, is, what, is but, this, what does this mean? Right. Yeah. And, you know, and there is this broader question of like, what does this mean? But... It's his last dying wish is make a sacrifice to the God. Because um, he knows that it's like, well, you know, I don't know what the, what the poets are saying about the gods is false, but there is something out there and we owe worship and sacrifice. Yep. Yeah. And this is where Benedict just sits on Sam Harris and just squashes him into the ground. Um like you want to exalt science and kind of experimental reasoning to the kind of ultimate in knowledge. Um, But that is a self-defeating move. Benedict says, modern scientific reason with its intrinsically platonic element bears within itself a question which points beyond itself and beyond the possibilities of its methodology. Modern scientific reason, quite simply, has to accept the rational structure of matter and the correspondence between our spirit and the prevailing rational structures of nature as a given on which its methodology has to be based. If you do not accept that there is a rational structure to the universe, you cannot do science. And the attempt to do science and to tell anyone interested in the questions of why the universe behaves rationally, trying to disqualify that, 
disqualifies you from doing science. This is a this is disqualifying refusing to do metaphysics. Absolutely. And so why he says why this has to be so is a real question and one which has to be remanded by the natural sciences to other modes and planes of thought to philosophy and theology. This Regensburg lecture is philosophically brilliant in my opinion, but it's also a literary masterpiece because Benedict is constantly, it's like this incredible origami creation is the best image I have for it, where he's, it's folded in on itself in so many complex ways to make this kind of beautiful thing, whether it's a swan or a house or something, some kind of beautiful origami creation. But then you unfold it and all the pieces of the lecture are touching each other in all these unexpected ways as you unfold it and look at the internal structure of it. Um, And so he's saying, the natural sciences ha- these have to remand the questions, send the questions back to philosophy and theology about the rational nature of the universe. That goes right back to the beginning of the lecture. That's what they were doing at the University of Bonn in 1959 with the Dies Academicus and going into the teacher's lounge and getting everybody together and just kind of hashing it out. Um, and the fact that the university does not do that is not just a loss for collegiality. It's not, it doesn't just kind of make universities lame and boring, which it does, but it is indicative of the intellectual failure of the university because they don't know that certain questions ha- uh, can only be answered, can only really be posed using certain tools and disciplines and ways of thinking. Yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the realities is that if you're just hanging out with your own faculty, you kind of get the sense that, you know, only what I'm, I'm, I'm we're doing the real stuff. And being forced to interact with the, and force might not be the right word, having the great joy of speaking with experts, um, really knowledgeable, learned doctors and other disciplines just sounds like it's how it should be. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. And it's not just a question of institutional structures. The natural scientists, the physicists, the chemists, the biologists, etc., if they are not doing the remanding and saying, why is it, oh colleague in philosophy, that I can do experiments? Why does the universe behave in predictable ways? If they are not doing that remanding and asking those questions, there's nothing you can do. Like, if you don't know that these are philosophical questions that undergird experimental practice, then it's already broken. I, like, I don't know. I don't know how to solve your problem. Yet another way in which this lecture is a literary masterpiece, in my opinion, is how he bookends it with these dialogues. So he opens it with this dialogue we've talked a lot about between Manuel II, Paleologos, and an Islamic scholar. Um, and he ends it with another dialogue uh, with the Phaedo. When Socrates is talking to Phaedo, and Benedict says, in their earlier conversations, many false philosophical opinions had been raised. And so Socrates says, it would be easily understandable if someone became so annoyed at all these false notions that for the rest of his life, he despised and mocked all talk about being. But in this way, he would be deprived of the truth of existence and would suffer a great loss. And so topically, it connects back to the earlier dialogue philosophical dialogue, um, a dialogue that itself is modeled on Plato, who wrote the Phaedo. 
So topically, I mean, it's talking about how you can know reality. And Socrates is saying something, Jonathan, you brought up, that on some level, the Socratic project ends a step or so, maybe more, short of the mark. It can't, it can't resolve the question of being properly. And there's, there's so many things like this about this lecture that it's like, it's just a little diamond. You just, to use a new image, you just turn it and it shines this way, it shines that way, it shines this way. So many facets. And he, the, the full ending, he actually goes, he goes back to the, to the original dialogue um, with Manuel II. It says, not to act reasonably, not to act with logos, is contrary to the nature of God, said Manuel II. According to his Christian understanding of God, in response to his personal interlocutor, it is to this great logos, to this breadth of reason, that we invite our partners in the dialogue of cultures. To rediscover it constantly is the great task of the university. Boom. So he has started the piece by talking about his, remembering his days teaching in the university um, and talked about and used a dialogue from the past to talk about the central issues facing the university. And he's jumped to another dialogue to say, look, these people who get annoyed at these false notions might mock all talk about being. That's what Socrates predicts. And it comes true. I mean, these are the dehellenization. This is the dehellenization move. We cannot talk about being. Um, we can't really talk about reality. Yeah, these people got annoyed. And um, Benedict says, the West has long been endangered by this aversion to the questions which underlie its rationality and can only suffer great harm thereby. And then he brings it all the way back from his remembrance of the university, his criticism of what the university has become, and then peering into the uncertain myths of the future, of what the university might be if it, like that streetlight, opens up, extends the radius of its inquiry into something greater. Um, this great logos, this breadth of reason to rediscover it constantly is the great task of the university. And that's what we're trying to do. We say we're on a quest to rediscover humanism for the modern world. Um, that's what we're doing here. It's what we're doing at the Ancient Language Institute. We're one little cell in that organism. If you want to understand this stuff, you have to go back to the sources and learn the languages. It's just indispensable. And that, that's why we do this. Right. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, we're trying to make, to bring back the Dies Academicus. That's that's my takeaway. Bring back the Dies Academicus. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Let's get the philologists, the natural scientists, the philosophers, theologians. That's right. All in the same room. Our listeners apparently agree. We're getting more reviews on Apple Podcasts are rolling in. Um, love our fans. They say we are Beavis and Butthead, the original guys on the couch, but instead of mind-numbing MTV, they are tuned into the true muse of philosophy in search of recovery of philology. Apparently, that's a five-star review. Thank you, listener. Awesome. What is Beavis and Butthead? You clearly uh, did not grow up in... I did, in America, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, and you, did, you didn't have TV. I'll have to I'll look it up. It's a rude cartoon. Oh, maybe I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Butthead. Yeah. It's a character named Butthead. <laughs> there, there you have it. <laughs> uh, 
So what one thing I just want to pitch is we have lots of language courses for adults. Um, we also have Latin courses for kids. So we have a middle school Latin course and a high school Latin course. Like our adult classes, they get started with a fresh cohort every term. So our upcoming spring term that starts in January 9th, um, we're starting a new round of beginner middle school Latin, beginner high school Latin. Those are good for uh, your kids who have never studied Latin before or maybe have and didn't like it. These courses are different. We gear them with curriculum and tools and methods specifically for kids, um, but drawing on the same principles of active use of the language, reading and speaking and listening from day one. Because honestly, the sooner the sooner you start, the better, the easier it is. Um, anybody can start anytime. We're big believers in that. But if you want your your child to be able to tell you what Dies Academicus means, this is the way to do it. That's right. Sign up today. <laughs> All right. Any any closing any closing thoughts, Jonathan? Um well, two closing thoughts. I will not look up Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> that's the first that's the first one. And the um the second one is it's just it's just I'm still one of my it's probably not like the meat and potatoes of the of this piece, but just the, the, the I've I've mentioned it a few times, but just this image of of the faculty. I I just that's that's my that's the image that I come away with when I read this. It's like this is something that was true in the past. And I don't think that um it's always like this reactionary it's not always reactionary to look at the past and think this was done before we can do it again. Right. And particularly it's not just nostalgia. I mean, there's an element of nostalgia, but Benedict is not a, he's never really guilty of purple prose or kind of like going over the top. Uh, if anything, he's all very muted. I mean, he's denouncing the university and it comes across as very gentle um, in a similar way. He's saying, Oh, these, these days were great, but he's not kind of waxing poetic about it. And that's because what he's really interested in is the understanding that made that possible and made it necessary, made it integral to the life of the university. And he says, that's what we need to recover because that's at the heart of reason. It's at the heart of Christianity. It's at the heart of education. Boom. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for your reviews, for subscribing, for sharing with your friends. Till next time. <laughs>